Welcome to the Classroom Podcast. My name is Eric Nganyange. I'm your host and the student in this class, sitting here with the one and only Professor Ron Klein. Professor Ron, how are you? I'm great, Eric. How are you? I'm here doing, we are again, eh? Oh, man, I'm doing <laughs> wonderful. Professor, I want to start it off with the title of the book. Why did he name the book The Prince? Well, one reason was he presented this work to the Prince of Florence, Lorenzo the Magnificent, aptly named for his cultural contributions, believe it or not. He was the first guy to recognize Michelangelo as a great sculptor. Okay. And putting him in, put him in his sculptor school, and in that school he produced his very first work, which is astonishing. So that's one reason. But the term prince really refers to the first, princeps is the Latin, the first person in the society. So that's the top dog. So it can be, it can be literally a guy called the prince. It could be a king or we'd have to say princess if it was a queen, but okay. it could be at any level. He wrote this book in, I think I read he started writing in 1512. That sounds right. That's, but the book did not get published until 1532. That was about five years after he passed. Yes, and very intelligent move on his part to, oh, to really? not have it published till after he had died. So it, because it, it's a bombshell. Right in political philosophy, it modern political philosophers say Machiavelli produced the turn. That's the term they use, and they're talking about the fifteenth chapter of this book, and we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. But it was so much of a change that Machiavelli rightly thought he could be in a world of trouble, not only with the Florentine government, but with the Pope. Right, And the penalties could be really harsh if the Pope didn't like you <laughs> or the prince. Right, yeah. They played hardball. So you risking your life if you offend them. And he thought, and we'll see, that there was good reason for him to think that he might be in danger. He published his other books while I was alive. He wrote a lot. His How much did he write? Well, his other, there's two other big works that he did. The next most often read is called The Discourses on the First Ten Books of Livy. Okay. Very interesting. Here's the shocker. He was a playwright, and what he kind of plays he wrote were comedies. Really? Not, not what you'd expect from Machiavelli. And they were sma smash hits, too. Especially from The Prince. Yeah. Right? Because we associate Machiavelli with evil. Usually, if that's the first thing that comes to mind. So to think that he's writing lighthearted comedies is kind of a shock, but they really were smash hits, a wow. couple of them. And then, of course, he was in the diplomatic service of Florence until the prince took over, because yeah. it was a republic. We have a long record of his, his diplomatic official writings, and then a good collection of his letters, on the first page, the dedication he gave the book to Lorenzo Medici. Yes. The, yep. Who was it? And good. why did he dedicate the book to him? Good, good questions. Medici family in Florence was very powerful. Their power began with, I think it was Lorenzo's great-grandfather or grandfather, Cosimo. Uh, they made tons of money in the banking industry wow. and in the cloth industry. 
So they became very powerful. They were part of the leading families of Florence. So basically, Lorenzo overthrew the Republic. And remember that Niccolo was a diplomat for the Republic. Mm -hmm. And as part of that job, he traveled around Italy on diplomatic missions. And he, he has talked with a lot of people he writes about in The Prince. Yeah. So he has personal acquaintance with them. And that informs his writing because he can write with authority about them. When the Medici family took over as prince in the form of Lorenzo, he got fired. Worse than that, a while after he was let go, he was arrested. And tortured? And tortured. Okay. Not pleasant. He describes it. Not what you want to have happened to you, but he survived it without severe damage and retired. He had a, we might call it a farm. It'd be more like a villa, maybe in Tuscany there near Florence. And he retired there and it was a working place. So he talks about, and then fascinatingly, at the end of the day, he would take off his dirty clothes, wash up, have supper. And then, putting on his very best clothes, go into his library, as he said, to talk with the ancients. So what he was doing was reading the Greek authors and the Latin authors, people like Aristotle. That gives you the idea of how well he regarded the ancients. It's a special occasion to go in the library and read them, and I should you know, dress in my most expensive and best clothes even before I start conversing with them. Wow. So yeah. he, he was serious. So this was what, 1512 when he got fired? Uh, when the Med- I can't when the remember Medici the exact date, but over? that's close. Okay. Yes. Okay. So can we assume that mm-hmm. if he did not get, because he wrote most of this work because he was out of work. Exactly. He had time. <laughs> yeah. So if, we, if that was not the case, we would never see it. I would think not. Yeah. Wow. Or any of the other ones except for the diplomatic. Official yeah. correspondence. Another thing I read, what was the main language spoken at that time in Italy? Well, there was Italian, Italian. of course. It's a derivative of Latin. Okay. Very close derivative, as a matter of fact. Beautiful language. A lot of scholars wrote in Latin still. That was a scholarly language. That was the legal language, too. Yeah. And what was the original language of the prince? As far was as it? I know, it was Italian. Why do you think he did not want to write in Latin? Who was his audience? Well, his audience was the prince, prince. Lorenzo. Okay. And to go back, circle back to your original question, why did he give it to him? Mm. Well, a lot of people speculate that it was sort of a job application. Oh, it was buttering up the king. Buttering up the king. Well, the prince, the prince. By saying, look, this is a really good book. I put down all my great thoughts in it, and they're really practical and useful. Yeah. You would love it. He makes an interesting analogy, says... You know, when you princes are up on the mountaintops, you can see the plains clearly. You know what's going on below you. But he says, you know, you get a better view of the top of the mountain from down in the valley. So I may be down in the valley. I'm a low-class person relative to the prince. But I gained a lot of insights from looking up at you princes and how you operated. Very clever analogy on his part. What was political environment? Complicated. Complicated. Yeah, you got these five power centers, but that's not all. Mm. The French were always angling to take parts of the peninsula. The Germans were in the guise of the Holy Roman Empire at that time. And the Spanish always had eyes for it. So they were always wanting to meddle in the political (laughs) situation. So that just complicates it tremendously. 
And you'll notice that the last chapter in The Prince is a plea to the Italian power centers to to ally against the outsiders that were trying to meddle. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what he envisioned was what ultimately happened, that all of the peninsula would be a country united. It's not unusual that political philosophers write a lot during complex and difficult political times. And one thing I noticed when I was reading, he threw a lot of names in there Yes, to back up either his claim. Do you think that's what resonates? the book with a lot of people that he used specific examples? Well, yes. And it also served another purpose that probably need to talk about. He was considered to be a subtle writer. And that word subtle has an interesting meaning for political philosophers and writers of all kinds. To be subtle means to be able to disguise the true meaning of what you're saying from what you're willing to say public. Okay. It goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, political philosophers write a lot when there's political turmoil. So they sometimes are inclined to say, it's dangerous for me to say what I really think, either from governments or from the church during the Middle Ages or even up to Machiavelli's time. They were still burning people at the stake. Okay. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Burning, burning? Burning, burning. Yeah. You do, You want to avoid that. Wow. So... Okay. That's one reason he didn't publish the print until after he was, he was already gone. He was already gone. Yeah, yeah. and we'll get okay. we'll get to that point in the yeah. prints. We'll talk about that. So the fear was from the government at that burned. point. The fear was from the government, right? So Machiavelli does the same thing, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things about all of those names is you can compare what he says with what we otherwise know about those people, and see what he did with that. Because sometimes if you look up that person and what they did, it's not what he said they did. So then you ask the question, why? And then you can sort of detective-like find maybe what are his true beliefs. Do a lot of wordplay. It's a lot of careful readings. You know, this is why scholars devote their whole lives to these works. Yeah. He he mentioned, uh, who was Cicero Borgia? Cesar Borgia? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you brought him up because he's important. He was the son of Pope Alexander I, Cesar Borgia. And it's almost a separate story inside the prince. Alexander VI is praised wildly by Machiavelli for being sort of a model prince because he's really good at cheating and lying and dissembling and... (laughs) And this is the Pope, and you yeah. wonder why he didn't publish it during his lifetime. <laughs> it's a, and it's shocking to people, right? Because you know, as soon as the book was published, the church put it on the index of forbidden books. Oh, really? Yeah, sure. They don't want anybody reading <laughs> no, about one of about the, popes, the Pope, and then let alone the Pope's son, right? Yeah. But Cesar was given a principality. His father, the Pope, Alexander VI, connived to get a province, the Romagna, which is like south of Rome and north of Naples, away from the prince that was ruling there, undoubtedly by lying, cheating, murdering, and that sort of thing. And he gives it to his son. And Machiavelli sort of retraces his career when he takes it over and says, look, he did everything right. And he steps through it. You know, the first thing you do when you get a new principality is you kill all the relatives of the previous prince. He talked about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and you know, 
that's a tried and true, sadly, event, because they would become the center of people trying to overthrow you, right? Yeah. So you kill them all, right? And then you have some other hard things you have to do. And Machiavelli's advice is, if you've got hard things you got to do that are going to offend your citizens or hurt them in any way, do them all at once. Then it's over with. Then they can get about forgetting it. And on the other hand, you give them gifts a little bit at a time over a long time so that they always see that you're doing something good for them, right? But get the bad stuff out of the way first. So he does that. He hires a guy, Romero de Oca, I think is his name. Tough guy. And he sent him out to do some of the awful work. This is the prince. The prince hired the guy to... Yeah, the prince hired the guy. And everybody knew he hired the guy. And he went around doing all these awful things. And then when he got them all done, people woke up one morning in the capital city and there was Romero's body laying in the plaza with a knife next to it. Oh, boy. Which was a message to the people... Yeah, I'm sorry I did all these bad things, and I just found out about it, so I'm taking care of him. He's gone, right? So <laughs> You hire a hitman, and then after the hitman, you get done. <laughs> yeah, you can take credit for getting rid of them. And, <laughs> getting rid of the bad guy. Yeah, and deflect, you know, criticism of you. And then you start giving them goodies. So things are going good. He's got, he's got things in hand. And then his father, the Pope, gets very ill and near death, and he becomes very ill. And this is, this is important, a point for Machiavelli. There's two things that he talks about affecting what a prince does. The first one is the prince's virtu. That's the Italian word that looks like virtue to us. Mm. He, he doesn't mean it in that sense. It's not Vir- talking about moral, I'm guessing. No. <laughs> virtu is manly strength. Oh. Because the vir part of that really is the Latin word for man. So it's manly strength. Being a tough guy, tough-minded, willing to do whatever you have to do to control your principality. So much for that, and he talks a lot in the book about what that amounts to. But the other thing you've got to account for is fortuna. That's a Latin word for fortune. So, wheel of fortune. Mm. Bad luck, right? Sometimes you can have good luck, sometimes bad luck. Well, despite the fact that Cesara did all the right things, displayed virtu as well as you can do it, he was struck by bad fortune. And it turns out Machiavelli actually talked to him after he got sick. So he's, you know, first person description. And then, of course, even worse, his father, the Pope, died. Obviously, Cesare was going to have a lot to say about who the new Pope was. So Fortuna, you can't do anything about it, right? Bad break, like our virus, mm-hmm. bad break for a whole society. Yeah. We, we were doing really well. And then along comes Fortuna and throws us a curveball. And yeah. now we, we've been dealing You're with You're listening that to the Classroom Podcast. Is there a case to be made that Machiavelli created the blueprint for tyranny? Uh, no, but he described it pretty well. Okay. But there have been tyrants. Before, there were governments, yeah. right? Yeah. So, but he described it. In, and again, the shocking thing is he's willing to say to a potential tyrant, this is how you do so it. So you do it. Yeah. This is a manual. Do it this way, and the odds are you will be successful, fortuna aside. So I'm giving you a technique. 
And that's what he was trying to sell, so to speak, to yeah. Lorenzo, who was doing pretty well by himself, by the way. <laughs> yeah, because I was reading somewhere, they say uh, Joe Stalin, Hitler, they had the copy of The Prince. And I was thinking, I think Joe Stalin was destined to be evil man. Sure seems <laughs> like it. <laughs> From the beginning. I don't oh. think it doesn't matter if he had the copy of The Prince or not. Another thing in the book, Professor, Machiavelli said it's better for Prince to be feared than loved. If he can't be both, talk to me. Oh, glad you brought that up. uh, He says, is it better to be loved or be feared? So he says, you'd rather be both. Mm -hmm. That would be the ideal thing. But he says, and I'm going to read it because it's really a wonderful sentence. It is much safer to be feared than loved. When of the two, either must be dispensed with, because this is to be asserted in general of men, that they are ungrateful, fickle, love those. false, <laughs> cowardly, covetous, and as long as you succeed, they are yours entirely. They will offer you their blood, property, life, and children. As is said above, when the need is far distant, they will do all those things for you. But when it approaches, they turn against you because love is fickle. And we all know that. But as he says a little later, but fear preserves you by a dread of punishment, which never fails. So being feared is better than being loved, but you'd like to be able to be both. Mm. Very few princes accomplish that. He also warns us, though, don't let the fear turn to hatred. Yeah, that was a very, very interesting point. Yep. When he was talking about stealing people's property and stuff like that. And their women. And their women. Yeah. Yeah. Don't mess with a man's women. Don't mess with their property. Why do you avoid hatred? Because a man who hates you is willing to give up his own life to kill you. And that's happened to several princes for that reason, right? They made mistake and made the person hate them and they sacrificed their life to kill him. It's, It's hard to stop a lone assassin. How do you separate the two? Well, the fear they, from spilling to a hate. Well, don't mess with their property, property or their women. women, right? So if if they reach, and worse maybe even than hatred would be despair, mm. because that's a darker emotion even yet. But that will lead to the same thing. They'll try to wipe you out. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, imagine if you make a lot of people hate you. Now you got real trouble. So he, he warns you about that. He expects but he expects all princes to have some judgment so that they can tell when they're getting close to the line. Hopefully, they're all thinking about it all the time. Yeah, on chapter three, this was interesting. He said, one is to remark that men either to be well-treated or crushed <laughs> because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries. Of more serious ones, they cannot. That's right. That's one reason you have to wipe out the ruling family from before. Common technique. When the Russian Revolution happened, they obviously arrested the Tsar. I think it was Alexander II. I could be wrong about yeah. the number, but I think it was Alexander and his family. And they kept them incarcerated for a while. And then this was Lenin at that time. said, okay, we've, we're in control now. Kill them. Wiped them all out relentlessly. Wow. I mean, that's, that's horrifying. Wow. But... There's an interesting thread going through the prince that seems to be arguing the other thing a prince ought to be careful about is always having support of his subjects or citizens, Mm. as the case may be, because if they all turn on you, you're in deep trouble. 
either they will directly go after you or they will welcome attempts by other princes to overthrow you. They might throw in with somebody for money, say, or promise of a good position in a new government. So these are are techniques for power, but with a warning, be careful how you treat your subjects. They ultimately may control your fate. So that's a good warning too. And that's true of it for any prince. If given enough reason, subjects will revolt. Mm. Happens all the time. Yep. So be careful, says Machiavelli, right? Yeah. I'm showing you how to use power, mostly against other princes. I've had this little bit about don't mess with property and women, but also don't be so oppressive to them that they will, as a group, rise up against you, because they will. So it's almost like I'm showing you how to abuse the power, but don't abuse it too much. Exactly. <laughs> draw, you got to draw a line you there. Draw the line. Yeah. Yeah. Professor, did he get reinstated to the government with Medici's family? Oh, no. By the way, Machiavelli's buried with honor. Buried is not the right word. He's in uh, the Church of San Croce. His sarcophagus is there, raised up. Rightfully recognized as a really important guy in Florence. Long-lasting effect. Actually, I got a chance to go into... He had a townhouse in Florence. It's been been remodeled often. I think it's sort of an sort of an apartment complex now, very small. But my niece, actually my wife's niece, works for the consulate in Florence, and she her apartment was in the building that Machiavelli owned in town. Oh, wow. A little, little plaque on the door, very nice. And wow. You're cool. listening to The Classroom Podcast. This next question, the question of justice in this book. That's a great question. Is the justice... Basically, it's the interest of the stronger. Absolutely. This is Thrasymachus all over again. Yeah. Because Thrasymachus in the first chapter of the Republic is saying, you guys are talking about all this goody-goody stuff, and you're just ignoring reality. Mm -hmm. That justice is just the interest of the stronger. And I, I think the prince supports that. It's interesting, too, that in, I think it's still in chapter 15, Machiavelli says... You know, you guys have been reading political philosophers that were creating cities in the air that had no reality. And he's talking about Plato, remember? And Plato says in the Republic, we're creating these cities in words, that they're not real cities. Mm -hmm. And in the Middle Ages, of course, and there was a lot of good political philosophy in the Middle Ages, despite what a lot of people think, that it was a dark age. Theirs were all based on congruence with a heavenly city. So you should have on earth something that's as near as can be possible, as good as what heaven might look like. And so it was very speculative, obviously, because we we don't know yet what heaven is like. And so he says, Machiavelli, that is, says, look, you've been reading these fairy tales, basically, about how government works. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is how it really happens. And if you want to be successful, forget about the cities in the air. Do what I'm suggesting you do. And justice doesn't have anything to do with it. It's virtue, manly strength. And here's how you wield it. So as far as he's concerned, he's in Thrasymachus's corner. Justice is the interest of the stronger and only the interest of the stronger. Nobody else's opinion counts. Yeah, and there was a, I cannot remember what chapter that was. He was talking about Agathocles. 
Oh, yeah. He was one of the greatest tyrants of the ancient world. He was so absolutely ruthless. He did it on a big scale, but it's not an unusual event for a prince to say, well, get all your enemies together and say, let's get together and we'll have a peace talk. We'll have a nice meal. We'll come to some agreement about these things. And he gets them all set down at dinners and he kind of walks out of the room to go to the bathroom or something and his soldiers show up and kill everybody. That's not uncommon, but Agathocles was considered to be the worst tyrant in the ancient world. I think that's what makes the book so powerful because Machiavelli can just tie his thoughts and idea to a specific situation and a person. Yes. For somebody who wants to read The Prince, what would you recommend the great edition for them to grab? Uh, Every Man's Library, which is the one I have, is really good. It's a it's a hardbound but not expensive. The print is good. The translation's great. I can't even remember who translated it. Uh, W.K. Marriott. Okay. Really clean translation. That's It's not as complex as Manfield's. It's the best one I found for Machiavelli. I think I have four or five of them. And good. Yeah. What's the lesson in this book as of today? Why should somebody even care about reading The Prince? Well, a lot of these techniques go on in the modern world just like they did in the ancient world before Machiavelli. He's just given us a nice description so we can say, I recognize that, right? Yeah. And we have to be careful ourselves. We think we're insulated from princes, but the president is a prince in Machiavelli's description. Wow, okay. Yeah, we don't think of him that way. And hopefully they won't be reading Machiavelli and doing those kind of things. There's this thought that we should always have that we're not insulated from negative events in our society, right? Mm. Horrible events could happen. Yeah. We had this, the Civil War was won, but at least it was for a good cause. But, you know, our country could fall Fortuna or Bad Prince any time. And you don't see it coming a lot of the time. The Romans didn't think their society was going to fall, right? They were still planning on the years ahead, and then all of a sudden they're gone. Reading this can help us to see when the evil is coming. That's right. And more likely, I mean, I don't think it's likely one of our presidents would be a Machiavellian, like he suggests. But but we got to look at other places where that's entirely possible. Yeah. You know, what's going on in China? Mm -hmm. What's going on in North Korea? Yeah. What's going on? We can see in a lot of African countries, the president basically is it's the prince. Yeah. I mean, most of the African constitution, the president is above the law. Yeah. It's also an essay in the use of power, and that's in every government. You mm. have to have power because how can you enforce laws and make laws? And, and, and. So it, it depends who's reading this book. You can look at this book as the blueprint for tyranny, or you can look at this book as caution tale, I guess, for evil. Both. I think both all the time. Because, you know, if you have ambitions to be a prince kind of person, you're going to be tempted by the techniques that Machiavelli lays down. Mm -hmm. But pay attention to the fact that you can undermine everything you're trying to do and become a former prince very quickly if you're not careful. Well, anything Mm. else you want to add to this, Professor? I don't know. We've covered a lot of ground. All right. That's it. That's all we have for today. Thank you for listening to Classroom Podcast. Until next time, peace.